want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, specifically verse 9 of chapter 6. We'll be looking at a few other verses as well in a moment. I'll help locate you and where we're going. So as a little kid, emphasis on little, uh, I often heard the expression, good things come in small packages. Uh, I heard that expression in a variety of contexts, but one of the contexts in which I heard that, I think it was an attempt of some to uh, bolster my self-esteem, was the fact that I was, I was a pretty little kid. I had, I, I'm the middle of four boys. My younger brothers, I, I am the middle of four. My younger brothers are identical twins, so I was actually right in the middle. And my older brother was bigger than me, and uh, very early on in my life, my younger brothers, both of them, passed me as well. I got hand-me-downs from my younger brothers, and there was two of them. I, I don't remember getting a lot of new stuff. I don't know what I had to do to get new stuff. And that was a little hard on my pride as a little kid to get hand-me-downs even from my younger brothers. I was just this little guy. I became a father and had three sons, and uh, I have slowly over the years watched them, not always slowly, watched them also pass me. Uh, all three of them. I had really thought that Brennan would be the runt like I had been the runt, but he too I have to look up to. I, I'm, I'm not a big man. Christine says that I make up for it in volume, but <laughs> it, it's ironic that, that two of the nicknames I've had in my life actually speak to me not being small but big. When I was in my senior year of high school, I drove delivery at a florist shop and um, the other delivery driver who'd been there before me, he was actually, he was smaller than me. And so uh, a couple of the Hungarians who worked there, our Hungarians aren't here to, to fix my pronunciation, but they gave uh, him an, a nickname before I got there, uh, Kuchi, which means little. And so when I showed up, when I got hired, they called me Naj, which means big in Hungarian. We can check with the Zabos. I think I got that right. They called me Najem Kichi. And then when I got to graduate school, I became good friends with a, a brother from South, South Africa. And he, too, was smaller than me, and he ended up coining the nickname Big D. So I had these names that were saying I'm big, but I'm not. I, I've been this small, smaller guy compared to family, compared to sons, compared to many. This morning, as we continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to uh, something small. We come to the Lord's Prayer. In the original Greek, the Lord's Prayer is made up of just 57 words. You, You can recite the Lord's Prayer without rushing in less than 20 seconds. It's small. But What we will discover this morning, what we are going to begin to discover this morning is that there is nothing small about this, that this prayer actually is expansive, that it is big, that it is amazing. Daryl Johnson entitled his book on the Lord's Prayer, 57 Words That Change the World. Indeed, despite its brevity, despite its apparent smallness, there is something huge here in these words that Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount 
I've been reminding you, and I want to say again, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is prefaced by the announcement of good news. The good news is the announcement that in Christ's coming, a whole new order of existence is breaking into this world, that the future is spilling into the present, that, that heaven is invading the earth. I've been contending throughout this series that when the good news breaks in, when the good news takes root in your heart, when the Holy Spirit begins to have His way in us, something uh, happens. And that something is described by Jesus in this sermon. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, of gospelized humanity. Of men and women, young and old, who exhibit new characteristics. Men and women who, who live for a new purpose. Men and women, boys and girls, who exhibit new behaviors, who have new motivations. That our lives are, by the power of the gospel, by the power of Christ, they are transformed, they are gospelized. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus giving us a new law. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. This is not a new set of rules. This is a picture. It is a painting of what happens when the gospel takes root and transforms our lives, when the Spirit is having His way in us. Most recently, we walked through the beginning part of chapter 6 where Jesus speaks to our motivations. He, he digs deeply into our hearts and speaks to the motivations that lie behind the things we do. And, and to illustrate what he's saying, he speaks to three different acts of religious practice in the Jewish life and the Christian life. He talks about giving to the poor. He talks about praying. And he talks about fasting. And Jesus makes the point that, that we can do righteous things. We can do things that are good in a wrong way. We can do righteousness in an unrighteous way. Jesus exposes our motivations and calls us to faithfulness to the Father. That we would do these things not for the applause of others. That we would do these before an audience of one, our Heavenly Father. This morning... Or sorry, as we walked through uh, those three illustrations, if you will, giving, praying, and fasting, we skipped over some verses, 9 to 15. I noted that last week. I wanted to look at each of those acts of Christian piety in, in succession, and now we want to go back to verses 9 to 15. Verses 9 to 15 is a little bit of a, uh, a, an ex expansion on what Jesus teaches about prayer. It's in verses 9 to 15 that we encounter the Lord's Prayer. In fact, verses 9 to 13 is the Lord's Prayer. Verse 14 and 15 is an expansion on one of the, the lines of the Lord's Prayer. So we're going back now this morning. We're going to look specifically at one part of verse 9, but we're going to look at it in the context of the whole prayer, verses 9 to 13. Verses 9 to 13 provide us with what is a model of how we should pray. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This morning, in the time we have remaining together, I want to do uh, six things. We're gonna, uh, I've divided my comments into six parts, but uh, two halves, if you will. Uh, the first three things I want to do is 
focusing more, more broadly on the whole prayer, verses 9 to 13. And I want to speak to uh, the prayer's structure, to the prayer's scope, and to the prayer's center. To its structure, its scope, and its center. And then secondly, I want to ask three questions with you, focusing in most specifically on verse 9. And the questions are, with whom are we to pray? To whom do we pray? And thirdly, how are we to pray? So first, uh, just a couple introductory comments. I said that this is a model of how we are to pray. It's helpful to recognize that, that, that Jesus here is providing us a pattern. Notice, Jesus does not say, this is what you should pray, that specifically these words and specifically this order, Jesus doesn't say that. He says that this is then how you should pray. He is teaching us to pray. He is giving us a model of what Christian prayer, gospelized prayer, looks like. We, we find the Lord's Prayer not only here, but also in the Sermon, uh, sorry, in, in, uh, not only here in the Sermon on the Mount, but also in Luke's Gospel. And in Luke's Gospel, Jesus' disciples come to him and, and ask Jesus, teach us to pray. It's interesting that we have no record of the disciples or anyone else coming to Jesus and asking him to teach them anything else. We have no record of someone saying, Jesus, teach us to lead. Jesus, teach us to heal. Jesus, teach us to cast out demons. Jesus, teach us how to preach. They may have asked those things, but we have no record. This is the one thing we have in the scriptures that they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus here does that. He is teaching them. He's teaching us how to pray. He's giving us a model of how we are to pray. Daryl Johnson writes this, I understand the disciples' request, teach us to pray, to mean more than Jesus, teach us some new spiritual techniques that will help us stay awake when we pray and make us feel that our prayers matter. I take their request to mean, Jesus, will you teach us how to relate to the one you call Father the way you do? Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus comes and says, this then is how you should pray. This is a model of how to pray. Not mere words to repeat, but a pattern of gospelized prayer. So let's turn now to the first of the three matters concerning the prayer that I want to look at, and that is its structure. A couple things I want you to note. The, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer as we know it, uh, is comprised of two halves, and each half is comprised of three petitions. The first half uses the pronoun your. Uh, we pray your name, your kingdom, your will. The second half of the prayer, the second set of three petitions, uses the pronoun us. Give us, forgive us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. One of the things that Jesus is teaching us just through the structure of the prayer is that we are to begin with God's agenda, not with our own. It's not that we don't get to pray for the things that are on our hearts. We do. We get to pray for our very real needs. We, we get to pray. He teaches us to pray for our daily bread, for his provision for us. But as Daryl Johnson expresses it well, if we begin with God's agenda, our agendas are then put into proper perspective. Indeed, the more we pray the first half of the prayer, the more we discover that our greatest needs are in fact being addressed. We discover that our real need is to see the Father's agenda fulfilled. Structure is helpful to see. Two halves, 
six petitions, three in each. The first three, speaking of your, 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 the last three are in us. Let's turn secondly to the scope of this prayer. I want you to recognize the incredible breadth of this prayer, what Jesus leads us through. The, the whole of human life is gathered up in these six pet, petitions. There is no dimension of our existence, of our lives, that is not covered by what Jesus teaches us here. You see, we were made by God and for God, and we will never experience life, true life, apart from knowing Him, knowing who He is, seeing Him, seeing His glory, seeing His majesty, seeing His goodness. And so Jesus teaches us, hallowed be your name. Reveal who you are. We were made, sorry, we live in the midst of earthly kingdoms, kingdoms that are broken, kingdoms that are falling apart, kingdoms that are tearing each other apart, kingdoms that fail. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. We live in a world that has lost its way, a world that has rebelled against God, that is living according to its own dictates, its own will. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done. We are physical beings, beings who have very real needs. We need sustenance. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, give us our daily bread. We are relational beings who, who often wound and wrong one another and who are wounded and wronged by one another and our relationships are broken. So Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are spiritual beings who face both temptations to sin which bring harm to our lives and we face a very real spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer encompasses all of life. It, it encompasses the past, the present, the future. For our past, we need forgiveness. We pray for it. We, in the present, we need sustenance. We are led to pray for it. In the future, we need guidance and protection. Jesus teaches us to pray for that. No matter how you look at it, Nothing is left out. All you and I could ever pray for is subsumed under one of these six petitions. Jesus teaches us to pray a prayer that is incredibly broad in its scope, that covers all of life. Nothing is missed. Nothing is left out. Let's turn thirdly to the center of this prayer. I want to show you something else. I want to show you what is at the very middle, at the very center Following the first three petitions and preceding the final three petitions, we encounter the prepositional phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. That stands at the very center of the prayer. And that petition, that, that phrase, prepositional phrase, goes with each of the first three petitions. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven God is known. In heaven God's glory is, is revealed in all fullness. May that be true on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we are taught to pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven God's reign, God's rule is full and complete in, in all its trueness. May that be true on earth as it is in heaven. We are taught to pray. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is fully and completely done. All things are the way they are supposed to be in heaven. May that be true on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we are taught to pray. But what about the final three petitions? Could it be that this prepositional phrase goes with them too? Give us our daily bread on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all of our needs will be fully and completely forever met with God's abundance. We will know in an ultimate way what it means to be sustained. And so we are taught to pray that we might experience that even now. Forgive us our debts on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, our sin will be utterly wiped out and gone. And the enemy who is after us will be gone. All relational disharmony brought on by sin will be completely healed. And so even now on earth, we pray that we might experience that level of reconciliation and harmony on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, temptation will be no more. The evil one who seeks to destroy us will be utterly defeated. And so now, even now, we pray that we might experience victory over sin and protection from the evil one, from the enemy. Do, Do you see what stands at the center of this prayer? It it is a cry for heaven to come. It is a cry for heaven to invade this earth, for the future to break into the present, into the now. Remember I said that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by an announcement of good news. Good news is the announcement that in the coming of Christ, a whole new order is breaking into this world. The future is breaking into the present. Heaven is invading earth. That is what we are taught to pray for. Father, bring heaven to earth right now. Father, invade. In praying this prayer, we, we are engaged in a cosmic act. We, we are praying for heaven's invasion of this world. We're praying for the future to pour into the present. We're praying that it would happen now, to happen in us, to happen around us, to happen in Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver and Toronto, to happen in San Paulo and New York and Calcutta and Kinshasa, that, that God's kingdom would come, that heaven would invade, that the future would pour into the present. Oh Lord, Father, may heaven invade on earth as it is in heaven. May it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's shift our focus now from the prayer as a whole to the opening line of the prayer, the middle part of verse 9. And I want to ask three questions as I noted. With whom are we to pray? To whom do we pray? And how do we pray? First question, with whom we are to pray, are we, are we to pray? That, that question, of course, implies an answer. It, it, it implies something, that, that we are to pray with others. Look with me at the very first line of the prayer. Our Father in heaven. Notice Jesus does not teach us to pray, my Father in heaven. That's not to say that God is not my Father and your Father, that we can't pray my Father. But Jesus, when his disciples say, teach us to pray, Jesus teaches them to pray our Father in heaven. There is something communal about prayer. There is a need to pray together. 
to pray as a people, to pray as a spiritual family. Look ahead to what we find in the final, in the, the three, final three petitions. We notice Jesus teaches us, uh, give us today our daily bread, not give me my daily bread. Forgive us our debts, not forgive me my debts. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. There is this, this communal reality at the center of this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. He is saying that there is something communal in the very nature of prayer, communal in the nature of gospelized prayer. It's not that God is not my Father, that we don't approach Him as individuals, but, but He's saying when you pray, pray in this way, our Father. Matthew Henry writes, we must pray not only alone and for ourselves, but with and for others. We as a church, we as individual believers have been profoundly impacted by the individualism of our contemporary Western culture. We have been affected in so many profound ways that we even fail to recognize that we, we often speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus. We, we speak of inviting Jesus into my heart. We, we think in terms of me and Jesus and don't get me wrong, we need to come to faith in Jesus as individuals, but, but that language of inviting Jesus into my heart, having a personal relationship with Jesus, is not language you find in the Scriptures. The Bible speaks of repentance and faith. Repenting, turning from our sin, putting our trust in Jesus, and then being adopted as sons, as daughters, and being part of the family, part of the people of God. The Apostle John helps us when he writes this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. What is he saying? He's contending that everyone who loves God, everyone who is brought into a relationship with God, is also brought into a relationship with other Christians. That that every other man, woman, child who believes in Christ is your brother, is your sister, that it's not just me and Jesus. That we don't live out our Christian life as disciples of Christ, as lone rangers, individually. No, we need one another if we are going to be faithful to what God teaches. We need one another. Our lives as gospelized men and women is communal. Our Father. D.E. Carson says Christians are not to pray in splendid isolation. Again, that's not that we're not to pray privately. What did Jesus just teach us in the verses before this, a couple weeks back now? He said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. There's a place for private prayer. We, we ought to pray in that way, but brothers and sisters, we ought to be together to pray as well. There is a communal nature to prayer. I long for a day when our prayer summits at sunrise would be such a highlight for every one of us that this place would be packed. That it would not be just a handful of people gathering to prayer, but that we to pray, but that we as a church, that that nothing could keep us away, that we want to be together. We want to pray with one another. We want to pray for one another, that we would gather as a church and we would seek God, that we would cry out to God, may it make it on earth as it is in heaven. That is, my dream is your pastor. And I don't say that to wag, wag a stick at you. But I long to see us be a praying people who would embrace this call to say, let's come together and pray, our Father. Our Father. Second 
question, to whom do we pray? Jesus says when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, there are two important words that I want to speak to, things I want to address in that short phrase. Jesus tells us first to address God as Father, our Father. And He uses the modifying phrase, in heaven. Let's look at each of those things in turn. Jesus teaches us first that we, when we pray, we are to address God as our Father. That is hugely problematic for so many people in our world today. Both men and women who have had difficult, painful experiences when it comes to their earthly fathers. And so the word Father can be a, something that hangs us up. Whether, whether it's those who've had a bad painful experience with their fathers or those who had no experience, whose fathers have abandoned them. That, that language of father can just get in the way. It can, can be this obstacle. And yet this is what Jesus says. When you pray, pray our father. Daryl Johnson states this well. He says the word father is fraught with feelings of disappointment, pain, anger, and in some cases an awful sense of abandonment. So what are you to do? What, what am I to do if, if that's our story? And quite honestly, even if you've had a good experience, a good father, every earthly father screws up in a myriad of ways. Every one of us is a sinner in need of grace. So none of us is that perfect father. None of us have had that perfect role model. And so what do we do with this? Well, we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus for Him to heal our understanding of what Father means. And that happens not by looking around us. It happens by looking at Jesus. There's this great story at the end of John chapter 14. Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure. And He tells them that He's about to go away. And Thomas says, where are you going? We don't know the way. How are we going to come? And Jesus says, I'm the way, Thomas. In the course of that conversation, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Just show us the Father. Show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. The Father is just like me. He is just as good. He is just as kind. He is just as gentle. He is just as welcoming. He is just as approachable. I am a perfect representation of the Father. The author of Hebrews says that, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. When we are called to pray our Father, we need to let Jesus heal our understanding of what that means by looking at Jesus because Jesus shows us exactly what the Father is like. Jesus shows us exactly who the Father is. That's where our conceptions of the fatherhood of God need to come from. Jesus' open arms, Johnson writes, are the open arms of the Father. Jesus' open heart is the open heart of the Father. It is the passion of Jesus to help us know His Father as He knows Him, to love His Father as He loves Him, to trust His Father as He trusts Him. 
Here is the remarkable truth proclaimed even in these few words of this prayer. God, the almighty, the all-glorious, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things, Jesus says, is our father, our papa. He loves us. He loves you. And we are invited to come to him, to enter into his very presence and call him our father. Our Father to whom we pray is our Father in heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean He's far away? That He's distant? He's in heaven? In heaven here is not speaking about geography. It's, it's For the Jewish hearers of this, the heavens were all around them, if you will. This is about the imminence of God. To say God is in heaven, our Father in heaven, doesn't mean He's distant. He's, he's with us no matter where we go. Not only that, but it speaks of His authority. It speaks of His power. Remember back in Matthew 5.34 when Jesus was teaching us about oath-making, Jesus said this, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, it is His footstool. Heaven is His throne. To speak of God in heaven speaks of His authority, His his dwelling on the throne. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is on a throne above every other throne. So our Father, our Papa who loves us is the one with all power, all authority. Here, we hear of His, his authority, His power, His rule, His reign. John Stott says, Jesus here combines fatherly love with heavenly power. On the throne that is above every other throne is a Father who loves us who invites us to come to Him. Last question, how are we to pray? How are we to pray? We already know how we're not supposed to pray. We're not supposed to pray like the hypocrites who pray as a performance, who pray because they hope to draw the eyes of others to them. They, They hope others will see them praying and go, wow, she's really spiritual. He's really spiritual. Look at him pray. We're not to pray like the hypocrites. Prayer is not about putting on a show. Nor are we to pray like the pagans who, who babble, who, who think that if they get the words right, they say enough words or say the right words or say it in the right way or loud enough or whatever, mechanically that they will manipulate God to do what they want God to do. We're not to pray like the hypocrites. We're not to pray like the pagans. Jesus, teach us to pray. How are we to pray, Jesus? We are to pray with incredible, stunning boldness. Jesus teaches us to to pray, to to do something audacious, to, to boldly walk into the presence of God in prayer, to do something so, so bold. When I was in high school, and I, granted, things are really different. If you're a student right now, you're going to go, that's really weird. I can't imagine a world like that. My high school, there were, in the cafeteria where we ate lunch, there were four long lines of tables. And the tables closest to the teachers, high school was grade 9 to 12, those were the grade 9 tables. And next, the grade 10 tables. And next, the grade 11 tables. And the grade 12 tables. And you knew your place, and you didn't transgress that. I don't know how this exactly happened, but my friends dared me or something, and I thought, 
okay, I'm going to go sit at the grade 12 table. Now, this was back in a day where things would happen like wedgies and purple nurples and pink belly. Some of you have heard of those things. And I remember getting up, grabbing my bag lunch, and walking away from the grade 9 table, past the grade 10 table, past the grade 11 table, the eyes of all the grade 9 certainly on me, and probably more as I walked there. I got to the grade 12 table, and I, I had met a couple of people who had been friends of my brother who wasn't at that school anymore. And I said, hey, I've been dared to do this. Can I have lunch with you? And I sat down, and I ate lunch, and they didn't kill me. I gained some notoriety for a season. I did something audacious. I did something bold, something courageous even. Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, calls us to do something bold, something audacious. He he calls us to walk into the presence of the one who is on the throne above every other throne, to address him as our father, our papa, And then this is significant, and we will see this through the coming weeks as we walk through each of these petitions. The verbs throughout this prayer, with the exception of one, and and I don't want to get lost in the weeds of grammar, the the one that is different is a subjunctive. Some of you know what that is. It's the mood of possibility, speaking about what may be. But every other verb in these six petitions are imperatives. They're, They're commands. Jesus teaches us to pray by boldly coming to God and, and issuing a command, which just feels wrong, doesn't it? it, it to, to, to come to God, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and to issue imperatives. In the Greek culture, uh, an inferior would never use the imperative when speaking to a superior. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to do. That's what he teaches us to do, that we would pray with boldness. This, this isn't us ordering God around Though, it's us saying, God, would you do what only you can do? Father, would you hallow your name? Would you make your name known? Would you make your glory, your majesty, your love, your grace known in this world? Would you do what only you can do? Would you bring in your kingdom into this world? Would you do what only you can do? Would you accomplish your will in this world? Would you do what only you can do? Father, Would you meet our daily needs? Would you forgive us our debts? Would you deliver us from the evil one? Father, would you do these things that only you can do? Jesus teaches us to enter into the presence of God and to pray our Father and to boldly, audaciously say, Lord, invade earth with heaven. Let the future pour into the present. Bring on this invasion, Father. Would you do what only you can do? Many of you, like me, probably grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer in school. It's interesting to think about that in light of Jesus' words to not babble like the pagans. Uh, As a kid who grew up in the church, I often just went through it without giving it much thought. I be guilty of babbling like the pagans. Of course, a lot of the pagans around me would have babbled like pagans too because it meant nothing to them. There is a danger that we treat this prayer lightly, that we recite it without giving it much thought. 
not, not giving much attention to what exactly Jesus here is teaching us. This prayer is small. 57 words. We can recite it in less than 20 seconds. It, it can, at a glance, look unimpressive, but brothers and sisters, I hope that already we are beginning to see that there is nothing small. There is nothing insignificant, inconsequential about this prayer. That to pray this prayer, to learn to pray from Jesus, to be taught to pray by Jesus, is to be taught to, to engage in a cosmic act. It is our participating in what God is doing. It is us calling God to bring heaven down on earth. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are amazing. I pray, Lord, that You would give us eyes to see. I pray, Lord, that You would teach us to pray. Lord, that You would do a work in our hearts even as we learn. That we would see You. That we would know You. And Lord, that we would live for You, participating in what You are doing for Your glory and for our joy. Pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.